I mean, so as you know, if you've been coming along the last few weeks to Found Church, you'll know that we're working through a series called In the Upper Room with Jesus. And we're looking at Jesus' final hours eh, and moments with His disciples eh, and how they are also applicable to us today. It's not just a story for them, but it's how it's applicable for us today. And we're going to be looking at five incredible chapters in the book of John, from chapter 13 all the way through to chapter 17. And those five chapters are devoted to a 24-hour period. But here we are in week, whatever it is, five, I think, and we're still, in, we're still in chapter 13. It's going to take us a while to get through these chapters. There's so much stuff in there. It's just incredible. So if you have your Bible with, handy with you, your phone, your iPad, the verses should also come up on the screen as I'm speaking. But John chapter 13, and we're going to be looking at from verses 1 right through to verse 32. And I'm not going to read it to you just now, just for the sake of time, but there is so much stuff in those verses. Those 32 verses, it's just incredible. And let me tell you, I've been challenged so much. I've read these chapters so many times in the Bible, and it's much more than a story about Jesus washing some guy's feet. Much more than that, as we'll see today. And you know, the last time I spoke about Judas, I had said to everybody that I had never really heard any messages about Judas before being preached, and there I was that day preaching about Judas, and today I'm going to preach about Judas and what we can learn from him. And there's perhaps no name in the vast scope of human history that is more readily identified with evil and deceit than that of Judas Iscariot. And you might be tempted to think that there's very little we can learn from his life other than that we should strive not to be like him. But as we saw last time, <coughs> excuse me, there's so much that we can learn about Judas on several levels. And today I want to look at what his experience teaches us about the sovereignty of God over human sin. And sometimes you say words like sovereignty, and you wonder, what does that even mean? And if you look up the word sovereign in the dictionary, you would find words and phrases like superior, or greatest, or supreme in power and authority, ruler and independent of all others, and it's definite. That's the kind of things that the, the dictionary would say about that word sovereign. But I'm a simple guy. I like simple answers. And, then, and if somebody asks me about God's sovereignty, I like to explain it as simply this, that God is in control. God is in control. There's absolutely nothing that happens in the universe that is outside of God's influence and outside of God's authority. Absolutely nothing. As king of kings and lord of lords, God has no limitations. None at all. It means being the ultimate source of all power, all authority, and everything that exists. God is in control. Only God can make those claims. Therefore, it is God's sovereignty that makes him superior to all other man-made gods and makes him and him alone worthy of our worship. In history, when you look up and study a bit about Judas, you'll find all sorts of mythological stories and just crazy stuff about Judas. And there's tons of it. And one that stood out for me, and this was, it was written, that says that one says that Judas was the nephew of uh, Cephas, the high priest who we read about in the Gospels, that he was sent by his uncle to join up with Jesus and infiltrate the band of disciples. Let me tell you, that is just one of the many, many legends and myths about Judas. But they're just that. They're myths. There's so much stuff written about them. It's just total myths. So what do we actually know about Judas that is actually true? Well, we know that the name Iscariot most likely means he was a native of Carioth, a village located south of Judea. And we first hear his name in Luke chapter 6, 
where he is chosen by Jesus to join the inner circle of the disciples. And it's revealing that Judas is typically referred to as one of the twelve. And I think it's done that to, to, to heighten his treachery to us, to make us understand the level of his t- treachery towards Jesus. See, it's not that, that Judas was just somehow part of the crowd, or he was one of the Pharisees, or he just happened to be there when that arresting party came to arrest Jesus that night. He was one of the twelve. One of those who Jesus most, and, uh, most intimately associated with and had wholly entrusted himself with to this twelve. And we can't be certain why Judas accepted the invitation of Jesus in the first place. But there are several possibilities as to why that could be. Some argue that, that Judas was a, a Jewish patriot who saw in Jesus an enemy of the people and therefore betrayed him in the interests of God and country. But the likelihood is that Judas joined the twelve because he saw in Jesus one person who could deliver Israel from the Gentile Roman oppression and re-establish the nation as a sovereign, as sovereign in her own land. And Jesus' consistent refusal to make his mission political and his open declaration that he would soon die in Jerusalem spurred Judas then to take action. If he could not be assured a prominent place in the coming messianic kingdom, he could at least profit personally by turning, over to, turning Jesus over into the hands of his enemies. So it was a mixture of disillusionment, frustration, and greed that would then prompt Judas to do what he did. And in John 13, I can see God's sovereignty over human sin. And throughout it all, we can see that God is still in control all the way through chapter 13. And I can see it in six really important scenes in these verses from verse 1 right through to verse 32. So let me try my best to get through all six in the time that we have this morning. The first thing I see there was that Satan was instrumental in the death of Jesus by stirring the heart of Judas to betray him. Satan was instrumental in the death of Jesus by stirring the heart of Judas to betray him. And we see that at verse 2 in John 13. It says, the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And then if we skip down a bit to verse 27, it says, we read that Satan entered in to him. In other words, Satan didn't merely put the idea into Judas's head. He himself entered Judas, the man. Judas was possessed by the devil. And we read pretty much the same thing in Luke, Luke 22, verses 36, that, that Satan had entered into Judas. And I think there's two really important things that are deserving of our attention here around this point. Firstly, the fact that Satan put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus does not alleviate Judas from moral responsibility for the treachery of his deed. And we come across similar language in Acts chapter 5, an instant involving Ananias and his wife Sapphira. They had pledged to give to the church a percentage of the money they received from selling their property, but then they held it back and they lied. Acts 5 verse 3 says, Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? See, the involvement of Satan in the sin of Ananias in no way resolved or relieved Ananias of his responsibility for the act that he committed. 
He was regarded by God as fully responsible and morally accountable for what he had done. God disciplined him and his wife. And nowhere do we read that the ear of him is simply exonerated because God had filled her heart to lie to the spirit. Sorry, Satan had filled her hearts to lie to the spirit. They don't get off the hook because of that. Evidently, they could have chosen to resist Satan's prompting, but they didn't. And the same is true in our lives. We have a choice. We have a choice. They were entirely complicit with his activity. And the same can be said of Judas in John 13. See, Satan put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. But Jesus himself is alone held morally accountable for his actions. So what is the relationship between the will of Judas and the prompting of Satan? See, it's clear that Satan did not move on the heart of an innocent man who would have otherwise done what is right. See, we know that Judas was a thief. We read about that already in John chapter 12. He had carefully hidden his real motives from the other 11 disciples. But as we'll see in a, mo- in a moment, Jesus knew from the, the, the beginning that Judas was a wicked man whose heart was already filled yeah. with deceit. Jesus knew this already. And Satan's role is real and the timing was his to determine. But Judas will not be able to stand at the judgment throne of God and insist of his innocence by saying things like, wait a minute, God, the devil made me do it. God will simply say, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. You did it yourself. And the second question that verse 2 brings up is this. Why would Satan work to have Jesus betrayed and ultimately crucified? After all, on several occasions leading up to this point, he had attempted to prevent Jesus from even going to the cross in the first place. And let me mention just one. The first one occurred in the wilderness, wilderness temptation of Jesus. There the devil tried to get Jesus to forgo the path of suffering so that he could gain authority over the kingdoms of the earth by bowing down and worshipping him. And on three occasions, the devil in essence said to Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, and I don't doubt for a minute that you are, demonstrate that you have a right to reign over all the universe. In Matthew 4 and 9, it says, Satan says, all these kingdoms of the world I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So what, what's Satan doing here in John 13, stirring the heart of Judas to, be, to betray Jesus? And I can't be certain, but my sense is that by now, Satan has come to realize that he can't prevent the crucifixion. It's going to happen. There was nothing he could do to stop Jesus from dying for the sins of the world. But in his book, and I love this, in, in his book, Spectacular Sins, John Piper writes this. Because he couldn't stop it, he says this, therefore he resolved that if he couldn't stop it, he would at least make it as ugly and painful and heartbreaking as possible. Not just death, but death by betrayal, death by abandonment, death by denial, death by torture. Jesus did that for you and for me. Secondly, the second thing I see in this chapter in in John 13 is that Jesus was never ever born again. He was never saved. Sorry, Judas. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> Judas, and, I've done it in the first... Judas, Jesus, Judas, Jesus. Jesus was definitely saved. <laughs> Judas was never, ever saved. He was never born again. Michael, keep on... If I do it again, you tell me. We must never, ever think that Judas was genuinely saved and later he somehow renounced and lost his salvation. 
We know this from what we read in, in John 13 at verse 10. It says, Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said not everyone was clean. So let me remind you again of the significance of the foot washing, so that you might see what Jesus is saying about Judas. See, when Peter insisted that, that Jesus washed not only his feet, but also his hands and his head and his full body, Jesus said something really profoundly important. He says, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. And of course, in saying that, Jesus was speaking of Judas. Got to write that thing. Jesus was speaking of Judas. Judas is not clean, but the other disciples, they are clean. See, in saying to the eleven that you are clean, Jesus is saying to them, your sins have been forgiven, your guilt has been washed away, you are born again, you have eternal life and have become a son of God. You are saved. Only Judas was excluded from that cleansing. On the other hand, you, Peter, and the others are also are clean because you are saved and forgiven. You have been washed, and therefore, to use the words of verse 8, you have a part with me, which means that you are in a relationship with me that will last forever. However, says Jesus, even though you have this eternal relationship with me, even though you share with me in a relationship of love and righteousness that will carry you safely into eternity, you still need to have your feet washed. Why? Well, we still have to walk the streets of this dirty, sinful, fallen world every single day. And our feet are going to get dusty and they're going to get dirty and they're going to get muddy. Why? Because of the sins that we commit on a daily basis. See, your experiential daily communion with Jesus can be disrupted and damaged by the dirt of sin that comes from living in a fallen world. Jesus says you only need to be washed once. And once you are truly washed clean by faith in me, born again, and justified and declared righteous in my Father's sight, you never need to bathe again. It doesn't mean that literally. You need to wash every day. Make sure you wash. But you don't need to be born again every day. I met somebody before that, that always responded to every appeal and told me they'd done it just to make sure. You just need to do it once. Once is enough. Jesus will save you right there in that moment. But the repeated washing of feet, it symbolizes the need for daily confession of our sins. Daily repentance from our sin and turning to Jesus again and again for the experiential application of our hearts of what He accomplished on the cross. And if you want to experience the nearness of Jesus in new and fresh ways, if we want to enjoy the full blessings of our eternal relationship with Him, if we want to live in the peace and the hope and satisfaction that He has died to bring us, then we have to continually keep our feet clean. There are daily sins that call for daily cleansing. And this cleansing comes about only when we respond to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Confess honestly and openly how we have failed and trust in the faithfulness and righteousness of God to forgive us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thirdly, the third thing I see that, that Jesus was not surprised by the betrayal of Judas. He knew what Judas would do even before he called him to be one of the twelve. In John 13, verse 11, it says, For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said... Not everyone was clean. And it jumps down to verse 18. It says, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, 
For this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. And we also know what Jesus, that Jesus was well aware of Judas' intentions because of what we read in verse 27. And in that verse, Jesus told them, what you're about to do, do it quickly. So Jesus knew and he told them to get it over and done with, go and do it quickly. And this isn't the first time in John's Gospel that we read about how Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas would betray him. In chapter 6, verse 64, it says, Yet there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And then also in John 6, verse 71, 70, sorry, it says, Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Let me tell you, nothing ever catches God by surprise. But I think it's important to note, though, that the fact that Jesus knew in advance that Judas would betray him in no way gets Judas off the hook for what he did. And you might be thinking, well, if it's certain that a person will commit a particular sin, that, that person surely cannot be held morally accountable for that sin. But we know it to be otherwise, not only from, from this incident, but also what we read in Acts chapter 4 about the crucifixion of Jesus. And there at Acts 4.27, Peter speaking, and he said, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So I know three things from this. Firstly, Herod, Pontius Pilate, together with the Roman and Jewish leaders, they conscientiously and willingly conspired against Jesus to murder him. Secondly, this decision on their part was predestined by God to happen. And then thirdly, God's hand in predestining this to occur does not alleviate or excuse any of them from the guilt of having crucified the sinless Son of God. And that is hard to get your head around. And let me tell you, I don't believe that to be true because it makes good sense to my way of thinking. I believe that to be true because the Bible teaches it. Not only here, but in numerous other places as well. And I have immeasurably greater confidence in the infinite wisdom of a perfect, holy God than I do in my own powers of reasoning. So that is why I believe that. And that is why I speak that today. And the fourth thing I see here in John 13 was the fact that Jesus knew in advance and prophesied the betrayal by Judas as evidence that Jesus is God. As evidence that Jesus is God. And we see here in John 13, at verse 18, it says, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. What does Jesus mean by this? Is he merely saying that when everything is over and the disciples look back on the prophecy and betrayal of Judas, that they will believe more confidently than they currently do in that situation, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. If that is the case, we should translate this as, I am he, that is to say, I am the promised Messiah. Or it could be that Jesus is telling them once again that his ability to perfectly prophesy the future is proof to them that he is Yahweh in human flesh. 
Uh, and that, if that's the case, we should translate this simply as, I am. I am. Jesus is claiming to be the I am who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. Jesus is the great I am that I am in human flesh. On several occasions, occasions in John's gospel, we find that similar claim. And it's important not to ignore the magnitude of this. Jesus is saying to them and he's saying to us today, look at my power to prophesy with the future with absolute certainty and perfection. Such is the proof that I am the great I am. That's who he is, the great I am. And the fifth thing I see here in John 13 is that the fact that Jesus knew in advance that Judas would betray him was both troubling to Jesus and at the same time part of God's sovereign purpose. Man, I had great fun studying for this message and getting my head around some of this stuff. The fact that Jesus knew in advance that Judas would betray him was both troubling to Jesus and at the same time part of God's sovereign purpose. See, we see in verse 21 there in John 13, it said, after he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. To say that Jesus was troubled means that this entire scenario of his betrayal by Judas would hurt him. It was painful, it was unsettling to him. And to contemplate such a horrific sin against you by someone that you have only and always done what is good is disconcerting and deeply disturbing to the soul. And I don't know what you're thinking, though. I was thinking the same thing. If God had ordained from the beginning that Jesus would, sorry, Judas would betray Jesus, and if Jesus himself knew from the beginning that this would occur, why would he be troubled or disturbed? Because he knew already. But the fact that Jesus was troubled when one of his closest friends betrayed him does not mean that he didn't know in advance that it would happen. Here's the theological truth that the Bible calls on us to trust and to believe, even if we don't fully understand it. And this is this, that God is often pleased to ordain his own displeasure. Let me say that again. God is often pleased to ordain his own displeasure. That is to say, in order to maximize, sorry, maximize his own glory, he often ordains that things occur that in themselves are displeasing to him. Although in and of themselves, considered in isolation, they might be displeasing to God in isolation. But God may be pleased to ordain them in view of the higher, longer-term purpose they serve to magnify His holiness, power, and grace. When you look in in isolation at a single incident and think, why would God allow that? But when you step back and look at the grand picture, then you realize that God has a purpose in all of it. Gary shared that in his message earlier. In isolation, you think, why on earth am I going through that? But Gary found a purpose, and he, the amount of stories he told me of, people he met in that hospital that he could encourage and pray for, that he, God had a purpose for him all the way through that. Isolation, you think, why? Big picture, purpose. See, God ordains and prophesies in advance events that when they occur, still cause him grief and sorrow. They cause him grief and sorrow, not because he is caught by surprise, but their by their occurrence, but because he is holy, pure, and righteous. And if you can continue to struggle with how a righteous God can ordain something, that ordain that unrighteous events take place, and then feel grief when something happens that he foreknew that would happen, let me say that again because I just messed it up. 
If you continue to struggle with how a righteous God can ordain that, that unrighteous events take place and then feel grief when something happens that he foreknew would happen, then I can only encourage you to trust his wisdom and goodness even when you can't understand it. That's my best answer to that question. Trust his wisdom, trust his goodness, even when you cannot understand it. And sixthly and lastly, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas demonstrates that even the worst of sins can be used by a sovereign God to accomplish his ultimate purpose and to glorify his name. We see this in John 13 at verses 18, 31 to 32, Acts 2, Acts 4. But in John 13, 18, we hear Jesus tell us that what Judas was about to do was actually prophesied in the Old Testament in Psalm 41. Centuries before, it came to pass. And betrayal is a sin of immense magnitude, especially when the victim of it is a sinless son of man. Yet it served God's greater purpose of bringing glory and honor to both the son and the father. Immediately following the departure of Judas from the upper room to do precisely what Jesus knew from the beginning that he would do, he said this in verse 31. He says, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If, if God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. And that's quite a lot of glorifying in one verse. But the best way to think about this is, think about it, it's quite similar to what we see in the, the life of Joseph. And everybody knows that Joseph, he's fancy coat and all that stuff. He had been betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery in Egypt. And then that moment in the story when his brothers come back to buy food off him and Joseph ultimately recognizes who they are and they have that moment. And Joseph says this, he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And that is the exact same as this incident in John 13. It happened for the saving of many lives, including you, including me. And as the band comes and we wrap this up, let me tell you, there's several practical lessons that we can learn from this entire scenario. And the first thing that we can learn practically is that God is sovereign over all history, not just the good parts and beneficial events, but even the most devious and seemingly destructive ones. God is still in control over all. That does not mean that he is the moral cause of all events, but he does in some mysterious fashion exercise supreme providential authority over all. He will win. He will win. He is in control. Let me tell you, not the government, not whoever the next first minister will be, not the so-called world superpowers, not Russia, not the US, not the tide of secularism we see coming across our country, not any ism is in control. God's rule supreme over all. Second, such is the nature, power and sovereignty and wisdom of God that he can take the most wicked of human sins. Sins that on the surface might seem as if they have derailed God's purpose and he can use them to bring glory to himself and at the same time bring good to his people. Nothing can overcome God's determination to glorify his name and to bring you and me into the fullness of his eternal blessings. Absolutely nothing. And finally, if God foreknew and foreordained the betrayal, arrest, scourging, and crucifixion of the Son, and he did, 
then caused it all to bring salvation, deliverance and healing to you and to me and great glory to himself, then we can trust God to work in the worst of circumstances and to know that all things work together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. All things, not just the good things, but all things, every single thing. And we may not understand how it happens, but we can, with God's help, trust that it's so. All things, all things, no matter how bad, all things. God is working. God is moving. He has a greater plan and a greater purpose in all of it. And we might look at it in isolation and think, God, how can you bring good out of this situation? But when we step back and we look, we can see where. We can see it. God has a far greater plan and purpose than we could ever imagine. It blows my mind each and every single time. Let me tell you, my mind has been scrambled a few times preparing this message. But when I came back to this point, came back to this point, that God would know about that, that the betrayal, arrest, the scourging, the crucifixion of the Son, and caused it all to bring salvation and deliverance and healing to you and to me and great glory to himself, that was enough. That was enough for me. I was like, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Brings me right back. But stuff I find hard to understand, why if Jesus knew what Jesus was going to do, all that stuff that's hard to understand, it comes straight back to this. God is in control. The good and the bad. He can use it all. And I just want to offer them back to him again today. Take my good bits, take my bad bits. Jesus, I trust you that you're in control. I trust that you've got a purpose far greater than I could ever imagine. I trust that even when I'm going through difficult times, you have a purpose, you have a plan. It might be hard to see it in the moment, but you will take us through. Dan said earlier, he walks with us through the darkest valley and he brings us out the other side. Every single time. And he has a far greater plan and purpose than we could ever have. Let's pray together. Do you know, just in this moment, maybe you're in this room, maybe you're watching online and you have never ever accepted the fact that, that Jesus died for you, that Jesus went through all that he went through for you so that you could be forgiven so that you could be restored back to that perfect relationship with God the Father and it's so easy to receive that forgiveness, to receive that brand new life, you simply have to say yes to Jesus, simply have to say Jesus I believe in you I trust in you today I want that brand new life and I would love to pray for you today to receive Jesus and if you've never ever given your life to Jesus. If you're in this room and never given your life to Jesus, I encourage you to just pop your hand up. No one is watching apart from me. If you're watching online, you can scan that QR code. Give us your details. We'll be in touch. I would love just to be able to pray for you and help you on that journey. Is anybody here say, Stephen, pray for me today so I can meet Jesus. Father, I just thank you today that when we take even the most difficult of uh, stuff in, in your word, Father, even the, the stuff that's hard for us to understand, we thank you that you have a greater plan, that you have a greater purpose, that you can speak to us through it all. And so, Father, today I thank you and I praise you for your word. Father, I thank you and praise you that you are in control, that you are sovereign over all. Father, we sometimes look at the world and we look at our own circumstances, the things that are happening in our daily lives, and we ask, why? Why is this happening to me? God, where are you in these moments? But God would say, I'm right here, walking through that valley with you, every single day so Father I thank you that you are sovereign over all that you are still in control
Father, we, we despair when we look at the state of the world. But Father, I thank you today. You've given us renewed confidence in all that you want to accomplish and achieve. Father, when we look at the sin of the world, the mess the world's in, I thank you that you are still sovereign over all of that, that you still have a way out of all of that. I thank you for the sinless death of your son, Jesus. I thank you that we can be forgiven and free, that we can be born again and live with you in eternity forever. Jesus, we love you and we just give ourselves to you again today. And Father, I just pray for anyone today who's struggling, who are thinking, why why is this situation happening to me? Why is, am I going through these, these difficult times? Father, I pray today that they'll be encouraged that you are still in control. You still have a plan and purpose for their lives. You still want to accomplish great things in them, through them, for them and with them. And so Father, I pray today that they'll leave here, they'll switch off their TVs, their computers, and they'll be encouraged today to realize that you are in control, that you have still got great things to do in our lives today. So we offer you afresh again our lives our whole lives, not just part of it, but everything to you again. And say, Jesus, have your way in us, we pray. In your wonderful name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been challenged and inspired. Please feel free to contact us through our website, foundchurch.co.uk, or you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.